to this edition of ABI World's podcast. The guest for this edition of the podcast is Professor Richard Lieb. Professor Lieb is a research professor of law and the distinguished scholar-in-residence in the LLM in Bankruptcy Program at St. John's University School of Law. He was a founding partner in 1958 of Cronish, Lieb, Weiner, and Hellman LLP in New York City and has been of counsel to the firm since 2001. A graduate of New York University School of Law, where he served as editor-in-chief of the Law Review, Professor Lieb has written extensively on bankruptcy issues. He also co-authored an amicus brief for a group of law professors, the theory of which was followed by the United States Supreme Court in Tennessee v. Hood. Professor Lieb teaches complex bankruptcy litigation and the amicus brief writing seminar, among other courses in the LLM program. The writing seminar is unique among law schools in that students have the chance to participate in actual cases on the appellate level, including making oral arguments. Professor Lieb talks about his new career in teaching the next generation of bankruptcy stars in this month's ABI podcast. Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I am Lois Lupica, resident scholar of the American Bankruptcy Institute, and I'm joined today by Richard Lieb. Thank you very much. Uh, Let me go back in history just a little bit. Uh, As a uh, very young and married person, I entered NYU Law School in uh, 1950, not having the slightest idea of really what it was like to study or practice law, except for a a wonderful college course in constitutional law. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first foray into bankruptcy was limited to a discussion with two classmates at the end of our second year when we were told we were permitted finally to elect a course. Uh, And they wanted to elect the course in bankruptcy law with the leading professor at the time. Uh, And I talked them out of it because they said we'd never use bankruptcy law in practice. (laughs) One of them was uh, the late Larry King, who went on to be the editor-in-chief of Collier on Bankruptcy, and the other classmate was Howard Schwartzberg, who went on to be a uh, very highly respected bankruptcy judge in the Southern District of New York, Uh who also died uh, premature, too young. Uh, So they they complained to me that they never studied bankruptcy law in law school with Professor Seligson, and I told them, you know, had you studied it, you wouldn't have liked it, you would have been bored, and you never would have become preeminent. So don't be complaining. <laughs> and we remain good friends over the years, despite that. Well, that's a great story. Uh, the first day of law school, I was told to look, at, to look for someone who had a big smile and little hair. His name was Herb Cronish, and we met and became good friends. And when in law school, we decided that we would like to practice together ultimately, which we did beginning in 1958, when the two of us founded a law firm and sat in one room together for about six months till we couldn't stand it. Uh, and that led to a, uh, an association of 49 years, which continues now. Uh, when I was a young associate, I had the uh, privilege to be sent in my first year to go to court to argue for an adjournment of a bankruptcy case. <laughs> and I won. I won an adjournment. It felt very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
then I, uh, I was hooked up with a very senior lawyer uh, in an old Chapter 10 reorganization case for a year and a half and didn't really know very much about bankruptcy but thought it was wonderful because of all the issues that came spewing out, which is the hallmark, I think, of bankruptcy law. It's just so replete with issues and issues after issues. And it's a wonderful thing for those who like issues and like diagnosis and like to write. Uh, as I said, in 1958, uh, we formed our law firm, and uh, I had uh, really no intention of a particular direction, although the litigation was interesting. Uh, and after a couple of months, one day I received a call from my classmate, Howard Schwartzberg, who I mentioned a few moments ago, to say that he had been appointed a receiver in an old act bankruptcy case. It was a small case involving a flower shop. Would I represent him? And I said, I really didn't know quite what to do about it, but I did, and uh, found a uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that uh, was a basis for avoiding uh, a uh, lender's lien, without going into the details. Uh, it involved a brief, which pleased the bankruptcy referee no end, who told me that it was seldom that they were presented with briefs in those days in the bankruptcy court. Uh, that led to about, oh, close to 20 cases in which he was appointed as receiver or trustee, in which I represented him in the succeeding two years and gained some knowledge in and really uh, a love of uh, bankruptcy law because of its issue-prone context. Uh, after a couple of years, however, financial aspects of uh, the practice moved in another direction uh, into uh, uh, real estate and corporation and securities law uh, which uh, and litigation, which I thought was really ultimately a terrific backdrop for practicing as a bankruptcy lawyer. Until 1974, now in that year we had grown to be about six lawyers, I think, and one of them decided to uh, uh, withdraw from the firm to become a full-time law professor. And he had been uh, deeply into the representation of a large creditors committee in an old Chapter 10 case. Mm -hmm. And the question was whether the case would go elsewhere after this big investment of time or whether someone at our firm would do it. And I decided I'd do it because I really had become bored with writing papers and corporate transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, you know, we'd conclude the case pretty quickly, and it turned into a uh, seven-year litigation with banks and others, which uh, turned out to be uh, a, a wonderful experience for me. It was a great result for uh, 20,000 bondholders uh, who at the beginning were told they were going to be wiped out and ended up with about 50 cents on the dollar on their subordinated debt. Uh, and I made a close, friendly relationship with uh, one lawyer who was an, the principal adversary in the case. We became fast friends, even though we were uh, fierce antagonists during the case. And uh, that continued uh, into a relationship that involved getting together for uh, uh, seminar presentations. And we wrote an amicus brief together years ago, and it was just a wonderful experience. Well. After I became involved in that case in 1974, after about six months, mm -hmm. uh, I found that I was engaged full-time in the bankruptcy law. And that continued ever since from 1974 
uh, until I, uh, I retired as an active member of the firm and, uh, uh, in uh, 2001. So it was uh, quite a number of years. And the uh, practice was an interesting practice, which, uh, as it developed, uh, did not involve processing cases in Chapter 11 uh, or other case processing, but rather uh, involved uh, litigation of bankruptcy law issues and a fair amount of appellate work, mm-hmm. again with the emphasis on issues and brief writing and, yeah. and argument, which is, uh, uh, for those who love it, uh, the bankruptcy area is a, uh, a wonderful place uh, to do it. So that that really is is the is the background now all during the years as i had mentioned uh i was uh engaged periodically in participating with others in seminars uh and then uh, oh about uh, 16 or 17 years ago uh, i was asked to uh, become the lecturer at a school the justice department then ran uh, for all government attorneys to be their lecturer in Chapter 11. Mm-hmm. So I did that at uh, seminars of that school, usually two or three times a year, sometimes in Washington and sometimes elsewhere. And these seminars had uh, four or five other lecturers who are all uh, lawyers with the Department of Justice. And I was the only outsider, but we got along anyway. This is the Department of Justice's Legal Education Institute? Yes, uh-huh. yes. And that's when it was run in Washington before they had their school down south. Mm-hmm. I've not participated since they moved south. They didn't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad. I understand it's a tough place to, to, to get to. <laughs> I just took a sip of coffee, which is delicious. Uh, so uh, I was involved in... Uh, in uh, lecturing in that way. And then in uh, 1979, through Judge Schwartzberg, uh, I met uh, Judge Bill Norton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill was then a sitting judge, bankruptcy judge in Atlanta, who had a, a grandiose idea for which he was told it was impossible to cause a bankruptcy law multi-volume treatise to be written. Mm-hmm. There had not been a multi-volume treatise on any legal subject written in, I guess, many, many years. So uh, five of us got together in Savannah, Georgia, in in a basement room of a hotel for a week, and we plotted out this Norton Bankruptcy Law and Practice. Uh, I wrote the first volume on bankruptcy jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. and uh, others did. Uh, the other three volumes it initially came out in four volumes. It since expanded, I think, to uh, eleven. Uh, so that was a great learning experience for me and the others, and uh, brought me in contact with uh, uh, very talented people who became colleagues and friends, uh-huh. uh, including Jerry Smith from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh-huh. You probably know Jerry, uh, uh, and through. Jerry, I met uh, his uh, younger people, Randy Haynes, who is one of the stars of the bankruptcy bench now, Mm -hmm. and his younger partner, Susan Freeman, who is an outstanding lawyer. uh, We we did uh, two amicus briefs together, not as my school project, but just independently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, met a lot of people who are committed to and uh, basically love the 
bankruptcy law and the bankruptcy practice and the academic aspects of it. I had no idea that's how bankruptcy law and practice came about. That's a great story. It started in the basement. <laughs> it started in the basement. Yep. <laughs> so many great things. <laughs> you know, other things started with Judge Norton, which I just might mention, uh-huh. uh, one of which is that uh, it was his idea, and he was the principal founder of the ABI. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that. He spawned that. He also thought that there should be a an organization to recognize true academic excellence in the law, and it was his idea to form the American College of Bankruptcy. Oh, I didn't know that. So that came from him too. He's got a very fertile mind, and it still works. And whenever I get a call from Bill Norton, I worry what's he going to get me involved in today. (laughs) Well, that's how I got involved as. uh, the editor of the annual survey of bankruptcy law, because that was his publication to start. And then, about a year ago, uh, Thompson West asked Bill if uh, he'd take over the Journal of Bankruptcy Law and Practice. So Bill asked me if I'd do it, and I'm the editor-in-chief of that one as well. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't have time to practice law, except for amicus briefs now and then. (laughs) It's it's incredible. We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. A recent study published in the May edition of the ABI Journal revealed surprisingly that bankruptcy filings by older Americans age 55 and over are increasing at a faster rate than the general population. Between 1994 and 2002, the fastest growth in both Chapter 7 and 13 filings occurred for petitioners over the age of 55. The study also found a general aging of the debtor population, with the median age for bankruptcy petitioners rising from 37.7 in 1994 to 41.4 by 2002. Conversely, the age group with the greatest drop in bankruptcy filing rates were among those aged 25 and younger. The filing rate for young people decreased from about 11% of the overall bankruptcy petitioners in 1994 to just 4% in 2002. John Goldman and Tom Ulrich, researchers at the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, conducted their study by comparing Chapter 7 and 13 consumer filing data from 1994 and 2002. While previous demographic studies primarily relied on survey data to find out the filing rates of different age groups, These researchers evaluated actual data from courts and public records available through outside resources. The study proposes a number of factors are behind the rising bankruptcy filing rate among aging baby boomers. Goldman and Ulrich point to the high amount of mortgage debt carried by older Americans as they tap into their home equity and rising health care costs. Facing reduced income in retirement and escalating costs, The researchers said they expect that bankruptcy filing rates for older Americans will continue to rise. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Tell us about um, the the other project that is keeping you busy, which is the course you're teaching at St. John's. Okay, that that was inspired really because of the uh, amicus brief that Susan Freeman and I wrote in Tennessee against Hood, mm-hmm. 
which uh, held that the states are uh, bound by the bankruptcy discharge and uh, do not have sovereign immunity to get away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was really Randy Haynes' theory that trickled down to us that uh, the in-rem theory of bankruptcy, which we argued, and we were really quite dubious whether the court would buy it, but uh, the court did go on that ground, and I realized that really an amicus brief for professors can be a very, very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was in uh, 2004. Immediately when that was done, uh, I uh, uh, I spoke with the people uh, uh, at St. John's, Bob Zinman and Ray Warner. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, we ought to have a course uh, in the theory and writing of an amicus brief uh, gearing it to bankruptcy cases because uh, I was in and they were leading the uh, LLM and bankruptcy program at the law school. Mm-hmm. And uh, they thought it was a great idea, and the dean thought it was, everyone thought it was terrific, and we did it. Uh, the, uh, the, the way the course works uh, is that uh, when, uh, and we wanted to, where possible, we really wanted to do amicus briefs in Supreme Court cases mm-hmm. for various reasons. Uh, when when the court agreed to take a case, and we followed it uh, closely, we, uh, the students would quickly study the opinion and the authorities and uh, try to decide preliminarily which side to support. That was necessary because when you go out to form uh, a, a group of amici professors, you really have to tell them which side you're going to support to see whether they'll support it and join you. Right. Uh, so that was done, and what we did was to uh, 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 get in touch with uh, uh, a whole bunch of amici professors from all around the country, uh, and uh, uh, they were all very receptive to joining uh, on the positions that the students decided to take. And I think only once, uh, did uh, two professors decline to to join uh, in the brief in the project because they thought the other side was the right side, not mm-hmm. the one we were taking? But we didn't run into that problem at all. What was their lively debate among the students? Um, yes, the yes, it was quick and lively, yeah. quick and lively. <laughs> and I was involved in it, and I'll tell you, it was time-consuming, but uh, very exhilarating. It was yeah. wonderful. And it wasn't just reading the opinion. They had to do more work than just read the opinion. They had to read uh, briefs in it and back up, and uh, it, w- was a, it was a worthwhile discussion. Now, uh-huh. we, uh, we tried to discuss it in the following framework, uh, that fundamentally bankruptcy is a statutory subject. The statute isn't much help on important <laughs> issues. Because it's ambiguous. Okay. If a statute needs construction, how do you go about it? Well, you read Justice Breyer's book, Active Liberty, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, lists, uh, he gave, uh, offered uh, five or six factors to be considered in construing the statute the language, the history, the old history, the purpose, historical background, the consequences of a decision one way or another. Uh, legislative intent. And the discussion with the students focused on congressional history, if there was any, 
uh, and sometimes it was there, but it wasn't found quickly, and so often it wasn't there. And the other dealt with the theory of bankruptcy and the consequences of a ruling by the court one way or another. How would it affect the practice? How would it affect people? How would it affect debtors, creditors, and so forth? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the structure of the debate within that framework, and then they came to a conclusion. Sometimes I pushed them a little bit, yeah. or others, but, you know, it was uh, a lot of give and take. So the side was chosen. Then uh, uh, the student, we, we divide up the research, the independent research, uh, uh, and then all come together with uh, a memo, short memos on the research, talk about it, try to integrate it, and then we parcel out writing different sections. Uh, uh, there were four to eight students in each class, and uh, that was kind of manageable. Well, four was easier, in a sense, than a larger number, but with a larger number, we would team up two on an issue and so forth. Uh, the students, I would say, wrote probably two-thirds to three-quarters of each brief, and I would do the rest. Uh, so it was primarily their work product, uh, and uh, when it was, and sometimes the time pressure was an enormous. It was a demanding course because, uh, you know, sometimes with only a few weeks to write a brief, particularly when you're supporting the the petitioner, mm-hmm. their brief goes first, and it, it's uh, concentrated time. And they're warned about that when they sign up for the course. Uh, uh, as soon as the, there's a, a good working draft, it goes out to the uh, amici professors for their comments. Mm-hmm. And by and large, there were few suggestions of additional theories or avenues to consider. Uh, they liked what they got. They mm-hmm. felt it was persuasive. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was uh, interesting to me that it that I thought we would, you know, have a lot of problems with all these learned people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it didn't work out that way. And I know they read it because we talked about it. You know, it wasn't that they were unfamiliar with it. They were involved in it. Uh, I, I think the thing that uh, maybe won them over is that in a couple of cases, the students found ancient authority directly in point that had, or almost directly in point, that had never been cited, Supreme Court authority. Hmm. And uh, uh, I think that uh, the professors liked that. <laughs> you might like it that's, as a professor. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah it, it, it really was. So, I understand that was um, something that happened in your brief um, in the Travelers um, versus Pacific Gas Yeah, ju- Justice Holmes surfaced 100 years ago. Uh-huh. In a uh, now that that case involved whether uh, a uh, an unsecured creditor would have an allowed claim in a bankruptcy case based on a pre petition contract for the cost of legal services the creditor obtained for services after bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue that the Supreme Court took was a very narrow one was the Ninth Circuit's so-called Fobian rule, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And that rule that rule was that uh, such fees for litigating bankruptcy law issues could not be allowed, but others' fees 
post-petition for fees for post-petition services could be. Well, there was no, there was absolutely no theory to support that. Uh, petitioner looked to overturn it and respond and agree that it couldn't stand. And the Supreme Court ruled it couldn't stand. So the, the Supreme Court really ruled on nothing in that case. The argument was made by the respondent to support the result below that uh, fees of this type on any issue, whether for a bankruptcy law issue or a non-bankruptcy law issue, could not be allowed as part of a general claim unless the services produced a benefit to the estate. Mm-hmm. Justice Holmes, in a case called Scruggs, uh, Randolph and Randolph against Scruggs, uh, squarely ruled, uh, not based on any statute, but squarely disallowed a fee for post-petition services to a claimant because they were of no benefit to the estate. So the theory of the brief was that uh, predicated on that case as it developed through the case law over the years that uh, no post-petition fees could be allowed. Now the court, in its opinion in Travelers, said that uh, it would, would not reach those issues because the respondent failed to make those arguments below or at the certiorari stage But the court referred to the petitioner's brief, specifically to pages 25 to 34, as I remember it, where all of those, I'm sorry, respondent's brief, where all of those arguments were made, including a long discussion of Randolph against Scruggs, Mm -hmm. and said, uh, go back to the lower court. So it's open. But in any event, I think the point is that uh, 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 the professors were... And and I and the students were really pleased that a student found Randolph against Scruggs, which had never been cited in any of these cases over the years. And there it was, and Hmm. with such an eminent jurist as Holmes. Yeah. Well, that's that's quite a testament to their research skills. Yep. Uh, So your your students also um, wrote a brief in connection with the um, Marshall v. Marshall case, the so-called Anna Nicole Smith case? How did, um, how did you decide to um, prepare a brief in connection with that? Well, it was, issue? It was, it was not because of the uh, notoriety of the petition of Ms. Marshall, uh-huh. uh, uh, who attended the oral argument and was very demurely dressed to the disappointment of the press. <laughs> uh, it was, it was just it was it was an interesting uh, issue, uh, and uh, our the students, in my view, on it from a theoretical point of view, was that uh, Ms. Marshall's case was a bankruptcy law case, mm-hmm. and uh, bankruptcy jurisdiction under the governing statute, 28 U.S.C. section 1334, is inordinately broad. Uh, that uh, there was no indication that Congress intended it to be cut down by any judge-made exception, such as the probate exception, although it was in place sort of for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that uh, the the way to go about the problem of uh, uh, important probate matters perhaps being considered in uh, non-bankruptcy courts uh, 
would be through the abstention provisions in Section 1334, uh, and uh, that there should not be a uh, flat-out limitation of unqualified jurisdiction, but rather have jurisdiction subject to uh, conventional abstention principles. So that was the theme of our brief, Mm -hmm. of the amicus brief. Uh, The court sort of mentioned it once or twice, but really, uh, uh, I think, went on a different theory, namely that uh, uh, the uh, probate exception was very confused didn't make much sense, gotten out of hand, and they cut it way back. Mm-hmm. Justice Stevens wanted to give it a decent burial, but the court wasn't prepared to do it. Uh, but it, uh, the, the one other point that, that's interesting, when the students sign up and join in the course, mm-hmm. they are told that they will get a reward for good work. They get it apart from the thrill of doing it, and the learning they Which get out of it, <laughs> and all the relationships that they make from it, yeah. they get a free trip to Washington, and assured of getting seats in the Supreme Court to hear the oral argument. Oh, that's great! They love it. And, it must have been incredibly gratifying. Well, when we went to the Marshall against Marshall uh, uh, oral argument, mm-hmm. the dean came, two other professors from the school came. Uh, they all went to the and uh, uh, the dean made a lovely luncheon afterwards and uh-huh. some alumni. So we had a big party afterwards. It was really quite a nice affair. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it really is uh, a lot of work and also uh, very rewarding and, yeah. a, and a lot of fun. I'm sure that rounds out the learning experience. There, was, uh, there, was, a, there was a case that was a wonderful opinion and a heartbreaker, and it said, but a great learning experience. The students learned how to lose. Uh-huh, which is but also a valuable lesson. Burgess against Sykes, we took a Fifth Circuit opinion, uh-huh. uh, appeal, yep. uh, which was uh, an on-bank hearing uh, before uh, 15 judges of the Fifth Circuit. One did not participate, as I remember it. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the issue was a nifty little property of the estate issue, uh, which arose because a farmer's crop was destroyed in, I think, in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, the following year, the farmer uh, filed into bankruptcy, uh, was discharged, and the year after that, Congress passed a uh, disaster statute to reimburse for the crop loss. So the question was, in the, in the case was, did the disaster payment of $26,000 uh, belong to the farmer or was it property of the estate mm-hmm. that would go to pay the creditors who financed the crop that failed? Uh, again, the students found two cases from a Supreme Court cases from the 1800s, which we thought were in point, and again were never cited in this never never land of uh, expectancies and property of the estate. Uh-huh. And that was the theme of the amicus brief. Yeah. Okay. Came time for the argument, and one of the students in the course who had been admitted for a year in Alabama, asked, we asked him whether maybe we could get permission for you to argue it. Would you like to? He'd love to do it. Uh-huh. The court authorized him to argue orally, and we went to uh, uh, New Orleans for the argument. Uh-huh. I was the coach, and he was the arguer, and he was prepared uphill and down Dale by 
three professors for two days. I thought he was going to wear out <laughs> from exhaustion. He was magnificent. He was far better than the two lawyers in the case, I thought. Wow. Uh, the case was a heartbreaker. The decision was eight to seven mm. against us. Mm-hmm. Uh, had one judge gone the other way, no, it was nine to seven. Had one judge gone the other way, there would have been a tie and there would have been a, an affirmance, which is what we wanted to see, and we would have won on that basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, judge Edith Jones wrote the dissent. Mm-hmm. Now, she uh, relied heavily on these two old Supreme Court decisions, but then did her own number, in theory, uh, uh, in a number of ways. Uh, it was... Uh, a 20-some-odd-page opinion, uh, which took the majority's 20 pages to task. Uh, Sadly, the identical issue came up in the 11th Circuit recently. Uh, Cert was applied for, and the Supreme Court denied cert, and they decided the same way based on this awful Fifth Circuit decision. Maybe someday the law will get straightened out. Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe during our lifetime. The benefit was... The students had a wonderful opportunity to argue. The students did a wonderful brief. They saw what it's like. They learned what it's like to lose. Uh, And uh, it was just a great experience for me and for them. So So what else can I tell you? Are you going to be teaching the course next year? Sure am. And do you um, have a sense of um, what cases are going to be considered? I don't have the foggiest idea. (laughs) So you'll start by looking in the fall? uh, Well, we're watching it now. But, you know, that's one of the problems, timing. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we don't have students until the last week of August. And we need a case where the best thing is if if they took a case in in, uh, September, uh, uh, we do the brief in the fall. That would be great. Mm-hmm. When they take a case in December uh, and the brief is in the spring, that gets to be a problem because of uh, exam schedules and things like that. Right. But, so timing's a problem, but we've always worked it in, and we're going to keep doing it uh, because the, the course is popular. Uh, the school likes it. I'm willing to do it, even though it takes a lot of time because I love it. Uh, and we're going to Stay with it. Well, this sounds like a very, not only gratifying project for you, but extremely valuable for the students. You know, at, at the bottom of it, the students learn what they might not learn in practice. Some do, many don't. And that is how to really read a case for what the words say. Before you start to take it apart or to cited for what you think it's saying or wanted to, how to read a case, mm-hmm. how to isolate an issue, uh, how to write clearly where what you're thinking really comes out in paper, how to make an argument where people want to pull it apart and shatter it to make a, a persuasive argument that can withstand scrutiny. Now, I don't know that you can learn all of that, but you get a a start at that in a course involving amicus brief writing where it's a real case. And that's the thing that sets it apart, I think, from an, uh, an ordinary drafting course, which can be very important, but it's just different. Right. Well, 
Thank you so much for joining me. Um, this was a, a fascinating um, discussion. Um, and this has been another podcast of the American Bankruptcy Institute. I'm Lois Antica, signing off.